Once there was a tree, and she loved a little boy. So begins the book by Shel Silverstein, The Giving Tree. Once there was a, a tree, and she loved a little boy, and he loved her. He loved to spend time with her, and every day he would come and play in her leaves and climb her trunk and swing from her branches and eat her apples and fall asleep in her shade. One day he even inscribed a heart in the trunk and put his initials and, and her initials in that heart, and it made the tree so happy. But the little boy grew up, and the tree was often alone. And one day the boy returned to the tree and the tree said, come boy, come, come climb my trunk and swing in my branches and, and eat my apples. But the boy said, I am much too big to, to do those things. What I need is to buy things. I want to buy things. Do you have any money that I could have? And the tree said, I, I don't have any money, but you can have my apples. Take my apples, and you can sell them in the city, and with that you can get money. And so the boy did. He took the apples, and that made the tree happy. And the boy stayed away a long time. And then when he returned, the tree was so excited. Come, boy. Come, climb my trunk and swing in my branches. But the boy said, I'm much too busy to do that. What I need is a, a house. Can you give me a house? The tree said, the, the forest is my house. I don't have a house that I can give you, but you can take my branches and build a house. And so the boy did, and the tree was happy. The boy stayed away a long time. And then he returned, and the tree was so excited, the tree could hardly speak. Come, boy. Come, let's play together. But the boy said, I'm, I'm too old for that. What I need is a boat so that I can sail far away from here. And the tree said, you can have my trunk. You build your boat and you can sail away. And so the boy did that, built a boat, sailed away, and the tree was happy, but not really. And after a long time, the the boy returned, and the tree said, I'm so sorry, I have nothing left to give you. I have no apples. And the boy said, my teeth are too weak for eating apples. And the tree said, I have no branches from which you can swing. And the boy said, I'm, I'm too old to swing. The tree said, I have no trunk for which you can climb. And the, the boy said, I'm too weak to climb. The tree said, I wish I, I had something that I could give you. And the boy said, I... I really don't need much now. All I need is a quiet place to sit and rest. And with that, the, the stump kind of straightened herself and said, well, that I can provide. Come, sit, and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. The giving tree. It's a story that kind of reminds me of another story. For God so the world that he gave. The giving God. For God so loved the world that he gave. And what did he give? 
his one and only son, who, though he was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, but was willing to come down and take the nature of a servant, was willing to humble himself to the point of obedience to death on a cross. The giving God, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, come boy, come girl, come all you who are weary, all you who are burdened, come, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus said, you will find rest for your souls. This past week, I uh, had the uh, opportunity to reacquaint myself with a man named Brennan Manning. Uh, Brennan Manning is an, an author and a speaker. He died uh, several years uh, back he was a Franciscan priest for a while. Uh, the one thing that, that is most known about Brennan Manning, his legacy, is this thing that he would always say, God loves you just as you are, not as you're supposed to be, because none of us are as we are supposed to be. Everything he wrote, everything he spoke, it was always this one theme. God loves you just as you are. Not as you're supposed to be because none of us are as we're so st supposed to be. And Brennan Manning knew that so very well. There was a point in his life when he was homeless he said people would regularly walk past him and, and call him filth. And then there was a point in his life, even after he became a Christian, that he was a, a raging alcoholic, consumed by alcoholism. He would sometimes tease that, that he considered himself an angel with a great capacity for beer. It's like he knew what it was to, to struggle, and yet he believed this one critical thing, God loves me. And it made all the difference in his life. God loves me just as I am, not as I'm supposed to be, because none of us are as we're supposed to be. And one day, a, a person asked him after hearing him say that for the umpteenth time, they said, Brennan, do you really believe it? And he confessed, no, but I'm trying. We learn early in our life, those of us especially raised in the church, we, we learn the words to the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, and then we spend the rest of our lives trying to convince ourselves it's really true, that Jesus loves me, this I know. This is the heartbeat of Christianity. This is where Christianity begins. You could even go a step further and say this is where Christianity ends. The heartbeat of Christianity is the incredible love of God. The grace of God given to people like you and me, given to sinners. I didn't realize that the, the book, The Giving Tree, created quite a stir when it was written and continues to create a stir today. Go ahead and Google it, and you'll soon find all the, 
the different opinions about the book. For some people, it's a, just a book about sacrificial giving, a book about generosity. But for others, they say, no, this is a, a book about abuse. And the tree is obviously a mother. And in the end, the mother is reduced to a stump, and she's asked to be happy about being reduced to a stump. And the, the boy, he just takes and takes and takes. It's this kind of codependent relationship. I don't know what Shel Silverstein had in mind when he wrote the book, but I do know this, that that boy, I recognize him. I recognize him every time I look in the mirror. In our relationship with God, we contribute nothing. We have nothing for which to offer to receive such incredible grace such incredible love, such profound blessing. And not just once, like God did it for us once, every single day. Nate was absolutely right. We raise a hallelujah because we are so incredibly blessed. And what have we done to deserve it? Nothing. We are continuing in our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark this morning, we're coming to a passage that is dangerously familiar. Dangerously familiar. So familiar that we just read it and breeze right past. But, but today, we're going to linger. Join me as we pray. Father God, I pray that you would break through the, the hardness of our hearts and the unbelief of our minds with your tender love, your amazing love. And through the power of your spirit-inspired word, remove our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh so that we might love as you have loved us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, we're going to be reading Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 34. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 34. In context, remember Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem with his disciples. He's told them, I'm going to die while, while I'm here. All the Pharisees, the Sadducees are giving him a hard time. They're looking for a, an opportunity to trick him. They're honestly looking for an opportunity to kill him. They're asking him these insincere questions. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And then they ask this absurd question about the, the resurrection, and, and Jesus plays their game. Well, there's a, another teacher who's listening to all of this happen, and he's observing that, te that Jesus is answering so well. And so he asks a question that I believe is sincere. I don't believe he's trying to trap Jesus. This is a sincere question. Verse 28 one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You are not far from the kingdom of God. I was looking over the sermon this morning and I thought to myself, why, why only not far? Why isn't this person like standing in the center of the kingdom of God? What's the gap? What is this person missing? I think what he's missing is because he's, he's trumpeting this idea that we are called to love God as we are and we are called to love people. But it is not our love for God, and it is not our love for people that saves us. That might be a shocking sentence to you. It is not your love for God, and it is not your love for people that saves you. If you love God and love people, you're not far. You're not far from the kingdom of God, but what gets you into the kingdom of God? It's not your love for God. God's love for you. And it's when we come to recognize God's love for us that we enter into the kingdom of God. What did the giving tree want from the boy? Uh, let's make this an all play. What did, the, what did the giving tree want from the boy? Anyone want to throw out a, an idea? Company. Be with me time. The, the tree was sad when the boy was away. He was happy when the boy was with him. Company, time. Yes? Purpose. It's good. My brain is not working fast enough to say something about that, but yes, purpose. <laughs> it's good. You want to say anything more about that, Jeff? Yeah, good. Yep. Appreciation. Appreciation. Boy, the giving tree gave and gave and gave. Anyone else? Can, can we sum all of that up with love? Someone's now like, oh, I was going to say that. <laughs> the, the tree loved the boy. And what did the tree want back? The tree wanted to be loved. The teacher of the law came that day impressed by Jesus, impressed by his answer. And so he asked them this question that was kind of a scholarly question. It was a question that, that the religious people did at that, at that day. They loved to debate theology. So we still love to do that. In Judaism, there were different schools, schools of thought, school of Hillel, school of Shammai, and they all had their own unique accent and their own unique angles on the scriptures. And so one of their favorite pastimes to do was to get together and debate the word of God, debate the law. 
And so he invites Jesus into kind of this philosophical, intellectual uh, debate, conversation. Jesus, what's the most important commandment of all of them? And the rabbis thought that there were 613 of them. 613 laws. He asked them this, this question meant for the head, and Jesus decides, no, we're going we're gonna to address the heart today. He said, it's easy. The greatest commandment is love God with everything, with every fiber of your being. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Wednesday nights at our dinner church, uh, I will occasionally uh, make the comment, how can you not love Jesus when you get to know him? At dinner church, we do what we call Jesus stories. It's like a 10-minute sermon, and it's always a story from the gospel. It's just a story like, I want to introduce people to, to Jesus, maybe people who don't know him. We have our ideas of who Jesus is, but when you really get to know Jesus, I believe it's my conviction that you can't help but love him. It's like those pictures. There's some of those pictures that I want to just jump in. You get to know Jesus the true Jesus, you want to jump in. How can you not love a God whose number one attribute, whose chief attribute is his love for you? The thing that's true about God more than anything else is that he loves you. How can you not love that God? To put this in, in terms that we can all relate, you and I have had the experience of being with someone that we suspect doesn't like me very much. Like this person, for whatever reason, is just not a member of my fan club. And maybe that's communicated overtly, you know, they're just mean and, and say some rude, cutting things, or, or oftentimes it's much more subtle. We just get this, this sense that that they're really not all that interested in us. There's this invisible stiff arm that is holding us at a distance. What does that do to you when you're around someone that you suspect, this person doesn't like me? My guess is that you're probably like me. What it does is it, it makes me want to just take a step back. I, I don't feel necessarily safe around that person. My, my defenses go up a little bit. I'm a little guarded. I certainly am not vulnerable with that person. And my instinct is to, to take a step back from them. Now, I'm not proud of that because I think Christ calls us to something higher. Christ doesn't call us to treat other people the way they treat us. Like even the, the pagans who don't believe in God love people who love them. We're called to something greater, but but let's be honest, our instinct, when we're with someone who is communicating, I don't like you, our instinct is to take a step back. What about when you're with someone who you suspect, they like me? They're fond of me. I, uh, I often will use the example of Gertrude Van Zuden. And those of you who know Gertrude will identify with this. Whenever I was with Gertrude and I left, I always felt better about myself. Like Gertrude has a way, you walk into the room, and no matter what she's feeling, she would lighten, brighten up. 
and she would have a smile on her face, and she would engage in some fun teasing, and, and she would make me feel like George Clooney. You know, like, who doesn't like that? And she would ask about my family, and how's your family doing? She's thoughtful. And I'd walk away from Gertrude and feeling like, I, I love her. <laughs> like, being around someone that, that you know loves you, what does it do to you? It, it draws you closer. You, you, lo- you can't help but not love that person. God loves you. I asked the, the question that Brennan Manning was asked, do you believe it? Do you really believe it? I mean, God loves you. And and we need to take that a step further because what a lot of us do in our mind is like, well, he has to. He's God. God likes you. Just as you are. Not as you're supposed to be. Because none of us are as we are supposed to be. Do you believe it? If you do, if you believe that in your heart of hearts and in your gut, this command to love God, it's not burdensome. Again, how can you not love the God who loves you so exceptionally, so fully, so completely, and so faithfully? When I am faithless, I know that he remains faithful. When I let go of him, I know that he holds on to me. When I am weak, he is strong. When I think I need to prove myself, he calls me his child. When I stray, he calls me home. And then when I come home, he welcomes me with open arms. Again, how can you not love a God like that? And so if we're wrestling with our love for God, do you know what the path forward is for us? It is not, I've just got to try harder to love God. That's not the path forward. The path forward is to immerse ourselves deeper in his love for us. That is the wellspring of our love. It's like, I need to just grasp how much he loves me. I need to sit down in his shade and rest a while. And look into his loving eyes and let his word wash over me. And then you can bet I'm going to start loving him. Which is why Paul prays for the church in Ephesians this way. He says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love. What does that word rooted mean? Jackie, pay pay attention. What does that word rooted mean? She's not here, is she? Oh, you need to tell her I said this. Okay. You know what the word rooted means? It means when I ask you the question, do you believe that you are loved by God? You don't hesitate. Absolutely. 100% I believe I am loved by God because I am rooted in that love. I am established in that love. Paul says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love might have power with all the saints, with all the church to grasp, to understand this love that surpasses understanding. We're no longer talking about the head. 
Like we can all intellectually know, Jesus loves me, this I know. But until it gets in your heart, until you believe deep in your soul that, that Jesus loves you, that God loves you, just as you are, not as you're supposed to be, it doesn't have the same power. He says, I pray that you will grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ that you might know this love, know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you might be filled. That's what happens when we get to know the love of God. We are filled to the fullness of the measure that God has for us. So yes, we are commanded to love God. How do we do that? We do that by coming to God frequently, sitting and resting in his shade, the shadow of the Almighty, by looking into his loving, tender eyes, by receiving his word and let it minister to us. What does he ask from you in return? Love me. I love you with every fiber of my being, and so what I ask from you is love me. Love me back. Love me with every fiber of your being. How can I not? If you believe God loves you. But, if you don't, if you don't believe in your heart of hearts that God loves you, then this command to love God will prove onerous and burdensome and impossible. It will force you into one of two camps. You will either become a legalist who thinks, I've got to work for God. I've got to earn my keep. I've got to prove myself to him. Nothing is given to me. I've got to earn it all. You'll be a legalist who becomes bitter and resentful because you always fall short. Or instinct will come over and you'll take a step back. And you suspect that, that you're not getting love this direction. Rather than being drawn to God, you're going to take a step back. Or you're going to do what I do. Both of those things. I'm going to work hard to earn my way, and then when that doesn't work, take a step back. For a lot of my Christian life, I struggled to spend daily time with God. It's embarrassing to admit as a, a pastor, but just struggle. Like, what is it that I'm struggling to come into God's presence daily? And, and I usually reason it's just because I lack self-discipline. Like, I need more self-discipline, and that's part of the story. But I came to understand a while back that, that the bigger part of the story is that I wasn't believing the truth about God. I was thinking, you know what, God doesn't really love me. And that when I spend time with him, the eyes looking back at me are communicating disgust. Blaise Pascal, the mathematician, said this. He said, God created us in his image and in his likeness, and then we returned the favor. And we created God in our image and in our likeness. And so what that means, if you have any shame, any self-loathing, any disgust with yourself, we go ahead and just pin that on God. If I feel that about myself, God must feel that about me as well. And then naturally, you want to step back from that God. God does not love you because you love him. 
That is amazing truth right there. People often ask, what does it mean to be reformed? Here it is. God doesn't love you because you love him. We love God because he first loved us. So Jesus is asked the question about the greatest command. He replied with what had to be the most known scripture in the entire Old Testament, the Shema, the, the verse that every Jew would recite several times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This was not new information. This was familiar. But what was new was that Jesus went ahead and attached the second commandment to the first as if they are inexorably bound together. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. Those two are not separate commands. They are tied together, which we need to hear because it is so easy for us to convince ourselves, I can love God. And as long as I love God, I kind of get this pass. I really don't have to love my neighbor. God's okay with that as long as I keep things in, in proper relation with him. I, how I treat my neighbor doesn't really matter that much. But Jesus says just the opposite. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. If you do not love your neighbor, friends, you don't love God. You cannot divide those two. It's made even more clear for us in 1 John. Anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love his God whom he has not seen. Whoever loves God must love their brother, their neighbor. This second command is outrageous. I think if we're honest, it's outrageous. The first commandment, I get. It, it's rational. It makes sense. How can I not love a God who loves me so much? But to love my neighbor, my neighbor's not always so lovable. Sometimes my, my neighbor is that person in the picture. It's a person that, like, I want to do everything but love that person. The scripture says you cannot love God and hate your neighbor. So how do we do that? What does God want us to do? I think what he wants us to do is see our neighbor the way he sees us, a sinner in need of salvation, an angel with a profound taste for beer, someone who, who, whose life is not as it should be, and yet God loves them as they are, and he calls us to do that. You cannot love God and hate your neighbor. That's got to be a billboard in our mind. I cannot love God and hate my neighbor at the same time. For 400 years, Israel suffered under the heavy hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, and Pharaoh said, work for me. Work for me, sweat for me, build my my buildings, make my bricks. And if you don't, you'll feel the end of my whip. And then they were captive in Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar said, bow before me. Worship me. And if you don't, you'll feel how hot I can make the furnace. And then in Jesus' day, they were under the heavy hand of Caesar. Caesar said, pay me. Pay me, keep paying me. 
and don't cross me, and as long as you do, we'll get along just fine. And then Jesus comes. And though he is king of kings, lord of lords, he decides to take the nature of a slave, a servant. Instead of demanding us as slaves to to sweat for him, he goes to Gethsemane and he sweats drops of blood for us. Instead of threatening us with the the fire of a, a hot furnace, he experienced the fires of being forsaken by his heavenly Father. Instead of saying, pay me, he pays the debt that we can't pay. And instead of saying, don't cross me, he willingly goes to a cross for us. And when he's asked what it is that he wants, he says, love me. Love me as I have loved you. And love one another as I have loved you. Friends, do you believe that God loves you? I'll wait. Do you believe that God loves you? Are we rooted and established in love here? We come to the, the table this morning. And at the table, God is shouting to us. He is declaring, I love you. I love you. Here at the table, we encounter our giving God, the giving God. He invites us to the table and he says, I don't want you to do anything for me here at the table. You don't have to produce. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to show me you've been a good little boy or a good little girl. At the table, I want you to come and remember what I've done for you and and receive. Come, boy. Come, girl. Come, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, come. He says, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, and they are, I'll make them as white as snow. Though they're as red as crimson, I'll make them like wool. Come receive my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. Come. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks and praise. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to your table this morning, you declare that you love us. And Lord, we want to declare that we believe you. Otherwise, we we couldn't come before you today. We come with nothing to offer in exchange for your great sacrifice and your love. Nothing other than our love for you, and we confess that even that wavers. Lord, we confess that we can love the things of this world more than we love you. We confess that we can be more concerned about our own glory than about your glory. We confess our negligence in loving our neighbor as you have loved us. And Lord, we confess that we are quick to doubt 
quick to doubt your love. We are easily misled and deceived. So we ask that you would have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercies, blot out our sin. Wash us and we will be clean. Purify our hearts and put a new and right spirit within us. Most righteous God, we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the whole world. In the joy of his resurrection and in the expectation of his coming again, we offer ourselves to you as holy and living sacrifices. And we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now upon us, that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless may be to us the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. Grant that being joined together in him, we might attain to the unity of the faith and grow up in all things into Christ our Lord. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.